Welcome back to the 24 Faithful Podcast. I am Bradley Adams, your host, and we are back today to talk about Season 7. Uh, we were going to dive into that last week. Unfortunately, we couldn't be here. Joel Wood slept through his alarm, which I found particularly surprising because I know that he has many thoughts on Season 7. I know that he's particularly excited to discuss this. Um, Joel is, incidentally, back with us today. Good to have you here, Joel. Excited is not the word that I would uh, use for that, Bradley. <laughs> Well, look, I, I'm going to set this out at the start that the people listening to the podcast for the last six seasons of discussion and um, I suppose to an extent legacy and everything like that, that people will know what's coming from you this season, Joel. And people will know what to expect when we get towards the nadir of this season and the twists and turns that 24 always throws up, that the ones that entail this season, people will know your thoughts <clears throat> as the president of the Bring Back Tony fan club. As long as they are as long as they are aware that uh yeah. I'm not going to be all that pleasant as we get toward the end of the season. Yeah. And my point was going to be that hopefully we're going to try and keep the negativity surrounding the end of the season potentially. Uh we're going to try and keep that towards the end of the season and not let it plague what in my opinion is a, is a very good start to the season. But um I- can't make any promises. Well, yeah, exactly. Whether that comes to fruition, we'll we'll see. But let's just dive right in. We're, we're starting it off, and, and Season 7, we start with where we left off in Redemption. Essentially, it's 47 or 67 days, something like that, after Redemption. Uh, not very long. And Jack is facing the Senate subcommittee. It's all going particularly badly for him, I'd say, until Rene Walker from the FBI comes and pulls him out. They need his help. And that help that they need is because Tony Almeida is alive and running a domestic terror group who have been committing a series of thefts and all sorts of other nefarious business over the last several weeks. They've been trying to catch this group and now they have a device or the the components for a device that will allow them to take control of the government's key infrastructure, water systems, uh, airplanes public transport all that sort of thing and they need jack's help to stop it so that's where we're going to pick up and that is jack investigating tony essentially because that is what the first two episodes become it's very quickly from it's right at the end of the first act i mean it's it's the first scene actually with uh tony kidnapping the scientist the the technician um whose name escapes me um latham yeah played by john billingsley uh that i remembered and um you know, it, it, it's obvious instantly that it is Tony. And um, we spend the next two hours with Jack exploring sort of a mix of, well, this can't be Tony. And then simply because A, he got killed and B, um, he just doesn't believe that Tony would end up being this kind of person. And B, then actually Jack finding him at, at the harbour. Um, I really love these first two episodes. I don't know about you. I enjoyed the, the first two episodes. Um as soon as you know when these when these masked men abducted Latham, at first you didn't really know uh, who they were or what they were there for. But uh, Tony Almeida or uh, Carlos Bernard has a very distinguishable voice. So as soon as he as soon as he opened his mouth and and told Latham why he kidnapped him, you could tell it was Tony because he has a very distinguishable voice. That at that, this point. That, I should- I should add as well, just on this, while we're on this bit of topic, not only has he got that indistinguishable voice, and, and you could tell it's him straight away, even with the mask. Not only that, Carlos's name has appeared in the credits by this point, yes. and also 
he was in all of like this was really well hyped i remember it and he was in the press releases he was in the promotional material of course they they come out and outline the story for season seven and and you know this is what season seven is going to be about this is who's going to be in it in the summer of 2008 before redemption before the writer's strike before all of that stuff happened and this was 18 this was ages before the series the season actually got came out so everyone who kind of paid attention to that knew that tony was going to be in it so it's a weird it's a weird thing actually that the show kind of treats it like it's a surprise but mm-hmm. also not to the extent of some of you know the nina reveal the logan reveal um audrey being alive those kind of things it's not quite on that level they they probably could have um made it a little bit more of a surprise because i don't think you know keeping them out of the uh press release and and you know things like that for you know one or or two episodes until, you know, he's actually revealed. I don't think that would have had a real big impact on their ratings. Um, <clears throat> but once we got a look at, at Tony, I will say that this is by far my favorite look of Tony Almeida. The, I mean, with the, with the exception of the little, uh, the little, um, what do you call it? Goatee. Well, if that's what you want to call it. The little uh, thing he calls a goatee there. With the exception of that, you know, I like the little uh, the haircut, the buzz cut, the more he looked he looked a little more well, a lot more in shape compared to I don't know if it's because, you know, he we're used to seeing him in a suit or what the reason might be, but he looked he looked a little he looked a lot slimmer uh this season. And um overall I I like the look because I've always wanted this version of Tony. The out in the field, the getting his hands dirty. I never thought that Tony was the kind of person that should stay in the office and run tactics. Okay, I never thought that, that was who Tony should be. That's that's a job for somebody like Bill, but not really Tony. So I enjoyed the look. I enjoyed them at least making him look like he was on Jack's level uh, when they had the little fisticuffs, I guess you could say. But at the but at the same time. You could tell that Jack was conflicted. Jack didn't know if he wanted to save his friend or put a bullet in his head. You know, (laughs) there's really no in between with Jack. Okay, (laughs) so Jack, and you and you could see how quickly, um, because when Jack's first brought into the FBI, he's kind of persona non grata. He's kind of um, nope. Not many people look at him with the kind of respect that he may deserve. Um, especially Larry Moss. Um, and Larry and Renee are very critical of his previous actions and the way that he that he does things and the way he operated. But you see how quick convincing Jack is because you see how quickly Renee is willing to listen to Jack and go against the FBI and Larry. So even even though they may look down on his previous actions and... and um, condemn him, Renee finds out really quickly that no, he's he's right pretty much all the time. <laughs> that is one thing that we have come to learn from 24 over the years is that Jack Bauer is always right. I don't think there's ever a time that he's wrong. I could be, I could I could be wrong about that, but I feel like everything he comes up with is, ends up being proven right and only goes wrong because someone's tried to stop him because they don't believe in him. The thing I particularly like about these episodes, the, the first two. Uh, uh, notable for this and of course as was tradition back in 2009 by that stage it was a a two-hour premiere night and then 
double episode the next night, a four-hour, two-night premiere type thing. I think they, they dubbed it. And the notable thing for me, and, and one of the criticisms that I had of season six, was the lack of tension. At so many spots that it's empty tension, that there's drama infused into a particular scene that Jack disarming the nuclear bomb, for instance, where actually when you stop and think about it for more than a second, there is no tension to it. There's no... There's, a, there's no consequences to what's going to happen. The outcome is inevitable. And although to an extent, you know, having seen the, the series multiple times and everything, there is always an inevitability about what we're seeing. I was particularly struck that season seven starts off with two hours that are really tense and knowing, you know, at Schechter's office that the, the, the friend's going to get shot and he's going to get shot and the way the scene at the dock plays out and all the stuff with Larry and Renee and Jack hiding all the stuff from him. There is a tension to it that was very much appreciated. I felt like we were back into 24 as opposed to season six when it kind of felt like a little bit tired and a little bit, which we, we know we're not, we're not quite getting what we need to do right. This time it felt like it was. Well, if you notice throughout the rest of the series, after season five and the, the epic conclusion to that season and everything that went down during that season. Um, 24 struggles to recapture that momentum for the rest of the series. Um, I mean, season six, season seven, season eight, season nine, definitely legacy. Um, they just, they struggle to recapture the, the momentum and the, the specialness of season five. Um, season seven is probably, when you look at the, totality of it is probably the closest they they came um i mean season eight was okay season six was not that good legacy was horrible um so they pro- they probably came the closest in season seven when you look at the, the totality of it 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 reminded me of vintage 24 <laughs> um it it kind of reminded me of um season one in a way um, because it was mostly mostly season one was was mostly just Jack even though CTU was there it was mostly Jack and a select few people that were actually um, trying to get things done um, you didn't it wasn't very convoluted it was very simple straight to the point and I felt like I felt like season seven for the most part um, now it did get convoluted at times during the season but for the most part it kind of stayed, stayed simple and to the point, um, and that's from re- from redemption on. That was kind of the the ongoing theme because during redemption you see this, and redemption was was filmed. You could tell by watching redemption it was filmed differently than the rest of the season because it was filmed more cinematic, obviously because it was made to be a movie, made a TV movie. So it was filmed a little bit more cinematically, and even even if you if you watch Redemption, you can see those little nuggets of of information that play out through the rest of the season. That's when you're first. That's when you're first um, introduced to Ike Dibaku, um, the Senate subcommittee that leads right into Episode One. So I thought they did a I thought they did a good job of, and I understand that the only reason they really did Redemption was because of the the writer strike. Um, but I thought that the writer strike was actually a blessing in disguise kind of thing because after season six, I kind of felt like at the time um, that they were kind of, that they were kind of burned out on twenty four. 
um, writing 24 episodes a year for six straight seasons and trying to make it different because, I mean, you can only have so many terrorist plots and moles and, and bombs and, and things like that to go through one day. So I thought the writer's strike was kind of a blessing in disguise because it kind of gave them ch a chance for sort of a reset, um, which I thought probably ended up helping season seven. Um, I'm not sure. I know Tony was scheduled to be on it before the writer's strike, but I don't know as far as plot and everything like that. I'm not sure if they would have been able to put that season together, especially with Redemption in the midst, had they not had that writer's strike. They've done eight episodes before Redemption, before the writer's strike, um, and then took obviously used the year to, to rethink or sort of clarify their thoughts on season seven, um, for the better, I think. But we're talking about sort of the feeling of Vintage 24, and, and I, I do think that Season 7 starts off that way, and, and part of Vintage 24 is the um, the concept that nothing is as you think it is, and the amount of times that that's been, over, that's been played during the show, and we get another example here with the interrogation of Tony. And look, before we actually get into the, the twist, I love the interrogation. It's so much fun, it's so nice to see we, we've had this dynamic for two episodes not even two episodes of, of jack chasing after tony and sort of starting to see him as the bad guy and we have tony here who feels a little bit i, I described it as withdrawn season four which is kind of like how he was in season four of being isolated and having left michelle left the government left everything doesn't want a job doesn't want to do anything he wants to sit at home drink his beer watch tv etc and it kind of feels like that but more withdrawn in in his interrogation he has that kind of feel of the well and, and and it's very much the the path he claims to be on at the start and obviously is on later on of everything's against me and i'm sort of i've been betrayed by everyone and you really get that and i think that's a key part of the interrogation that actually for this brief moment you can believe whatever we whatever we think we know about tony whatever we want to know about tony from pre seasons previous you get this feeling here that actually for them for a moment that this could be a thing and that this isn't all the act and of course we learn very quickly that you know deep sky and he's working with bill and it is all an undercover thing but i do i you know i i think that that's a really nice dynamic and of course getting jack to interrogate tony <laughs> that's just a great idea the <clears throat> the conversation between jack and tony um in the in the interrogation room was probably one of my favorite interrogations of the entire series um probably one of my favorite conversations of the entire series um because you could tell the the personal dynamic and think about think about this tony had to bank on jack interrogating him he had to, tony knew that jack was going to force himself his way into that interrogation room. because think about it like this tony had to get jack close enough to give him that ctu stress code so tony in turn had to know that Jack was going to talk his way into leading that interrogation. Because remember, Jack had to convince Larry that it was a good idea to let him interrogate Tony in the first place. So what if Larry would have went in there first and interrogated Tony? Tony wouldn't have been able to get Jack that deep sky distress code. So Tony, knowing Jack the way he did, knew that Jack was going to talk his way into that interrogation room. And then once he actually got into the interrogation room, then Tony knew what buttons to push to get Jack to 
kind of get close enough to him. And the one and the one button that you can push to get Jack to to get close enough to you is about his wife. You know, so Tony Tony knew that the one thing that he could say about Jack to get him close enough is to talk about Terry. And sure enough he did. And I thought I thought that it was it was masterful from beginning to end from Jack trying to convince Larry to let him go in there, uh, which Tony kind of expected because Tony Tony knew that Jack wasn't just going to help them capture him and then just let them run the interrogation and then go back to the Senate subcommittee. You know, <laughs> Tony Tony had to know that that wasn't going to happen. Um, so I thought it was kind of a, a masterful stroke of genius by Tony um, to get Jack in that room. And I thought it was just you know, from 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 Jack almost breaking Tony's neck to uh, the deep sky distress code to when he got put in holding and he made the he made the call and then we get our first introduction into Bill Buchanan for the season, um, which I don't I don't know how promoted he was in the season because I can't remember that far back, so I don't know if they heavily promoted Bill the way they heavily promoted Tony. Um, but either way, I thought it was a nice reveal and. Uh, Probably one of my favorite scenes of the entire season. Yeah, I think I think Bill and James Morris, uh, yeah, James Morrison was actually were sort of they're going to be her and uh, sorry him and Marion and Raja and Chloe they're going to be in it. Um, so I think that you know you're expecting them to come in at some point. The one thing I would say about it is it's a little bit it, it feels a little bit like let's get the band back together, which isn't ideal. But it, you know the, the the fact that it is Bill and. The fact that you kind of go from a minute ago, we think Tony is bad, mm. to now, hang on a minute, he's working with. We've got Bill and Chloe in now as well. That that that's a really kind of nice moment as a twenty four fan. Um, again, it, it feels yeah, like it kept stems it that way. <laughs> again, it feels like it kind of stemmed from season six being disappointing as it was. That actually, a little bit of I'm going to call it fan service of setting up these characters in this way and putting these characters in this scenario as they do we've we've lost ctu but ctu sort of to get all kind of high and mighty about it ctu is less a building than it is a concept i guess and ctu to us is jack and chloe and bill and tony and other people that have long since deceased us you know so actually to go we've got the fbi now but actually Mm, there's also a little there's a there's a little rogue ctu type thing going on and that's i'm all here for it i love seeing jack working with bill and chloe getting jack and tony working together again is really nice you know we've not we've not really seen it that much and certainly we obviously haven't seen it since the end of season four um so it's been a while and it's just it's it's a refreshing sight i think well we rarely First of all, we've never seen Bill in the field other than um, the end of season six when he's already been fired and he comes to save Jack and that whole fiasco. Um, Jack and Tony had very minimal experience in the field together. Um, they had a, Obviously, they had those few scenes in season four. Um, but other than that, like I said, Tony was mostly in CTU running tactical. Um, but I've said I've said all along that Tony was my ideal partner for Jack. He was the ideal Robin to Jack's Batman. He he's the guy that I wanted in the field with Jack every day, 
or every episode. Not not Chase, even though I love Chase. Uh, not Curtis, even though I love Curtis. Always wanted Tony to be that guy. And for some reason, they thought he was better in an office drinking out of a Cubs coffee mug. So this was probably my favorite part of the season because it was Jack and Tony working side by side for the most part. Um, working side by side to stop the threat. That is, even though it's in season seven, that's what I've wanted since basically season two. And they finally, you know, went all the way with it in season seven um, because that dynamic and the the closeness of their relationship, which you can see the evolution of their relationship. I mean, in season one, they couldn't stand each other. And then by season seven, you know, they're as close as brothers for the most part, other than the fact that Tony didn't tell him that he was alive. Um, so they were as close as brothers. And I thought that they should have get, getting the band back together with Bill and Tony and, and Chloe and Jack. I thought that should have lasted the whole season. I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna lay it all out. <laughs> that should have lasted the whole season. Yeah. Okay. They could have done anything. They Jack could have helped. You know, we'll get to that later in the season. <laughs> the point is, Jack and Tony working side by side was for any for any old school 24 fan, any 24 fan that's been watching since season one. Um, that was a welcome sight. That was probably the the highlight of, or one of the highlights of the season, was seeing Tony and Jack working side by side because Tony has always been the guy that Jack trusted most, more than Chase, more than Curtis, more than um, more than Bill, really, um, with the exception of maybe Chloe. But Tony's always been that guy that Jack trusted to have his back, <clears throat> and that's why I thought them working side by side was probably one of the highlights of the season, especially in the early part before Tony took his hiatus for four or five episodes or whatever it was. Yeah, and I particularly enjoy in this stretch, they end up working in a sort of unconventional way of, of being undercover together and being part of Emerson's crew and getting close to him, kidnapping the Motobos, uh, fake killing Renee, which we'll come on to in a second, and, and getting the drop on Emerson and, and the trade with Nichols. And I think that... We've not, like you say, we've not seen much of Tony and Jack in the field together. And to then sort of put them in this scenario where we wouldn't expect to see them anyway, that, you know, it's not, oh, okay, we're going after this terrorist and we've got to find this lead to get to this person to stop this attack. Like, it's not that. It's that weird scenario that Jack has been in occasionally, sort of almost Salazar, like the Salazars. It sort of reminds me of that, of when Jack is undercover and Tony's undercover and I, I just really like that dynamic you're doing all sorts of gestures and facial expressions and I sense that you probably don't like the relationship between Emerson and Tony I'm gonna guess Listen, I, 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 I've been doing good for these 30 minutes okay <laughs> I said I said I would save most of my vitriol for later in the season but since technically the the angle with Emerson's crew took place in the episodes that we're discussing now, I feel like this is relevant. That's, yep, it, it is very relevant. I did not like it. Not not the angle itself, because I thought the angle itself with Jack and and playing the desperate rogue renegade agent that wanted to get out of the country, I thought he played that well. My issue is the end result of the angle you know they're in there they're in the van and they, 
they got the Matobos and and they got they've they've already dispatched Renee and Jack is asking Emerson why he never told Tony. They're having this conversation and they're in this deep conversation and you know at that point that's when Emerson realizes that he's been had. You know, that's when he that's when he realizes that the fits is in. So they get out of the van, sneaks up behind Jack, which I thought was stupid anyway because Jack has never let anybody just sneak up behind him in seven seasons. But he just lets Emerson just get the drop on him, which in and of itself is impossible for me to believe that Jack would just let anybody get the drop on him, especially somebody that he's playing for a fool. But anyway, so Emerson gets the drop on him. He grabs him by the neck and, and you know, Tony shoots his guy and, you know, Emerson's like, tell me what's going on. So they had this big spiel or whatever. Tony shoots Emerson, which you had to expect was going to happen. And this is the part where I have the issue. Emerson's on the, on the couch or the bench or whatever it was. He's dying. He's got blood coming out of every place that could possibly come out of. Tony's trying to save him and, you know, because he's his buddy and he saved him and all that stuff. And then Emerson asks Tony why. Tony's explaining to him that, well, you know, you're willing to kill millions and millions of lives and that's just a line that I'm not that I'm not willing to cross. Which I thought was a great scene. Great conversation. Tony said that, going. That, that Tony said <laughs> you do. Tony said he's willing to that killing millions of lives was a line he wasn't willing to cross. That would have been an awesome conversation if he didn't try to kill millions of lives less than 10 hours later. <laughs> it completely, completely and unequivocally just negates the entire first quarter of the season. Because the entire first quarter, Tony's talking to, talk, talking to Jack and said, you know, I know Emerson's on the wrong side of this. You know, he's he's willing he's willing to kill millions of lives and that's not what I signed up for and that's not a line that I'm willing to cross. And it's it's great. It shows that Tony is the old Tony is back. You know, he's undercover, he knows what he has to do, but he's not willing to cross the line of killing American lives. <clears throat> and then he's willing to do the exact same thing just to get Alan Wilson in the same room with him. He's willing to not only kill thousands millions of Americans, but he's willing to blow Jack to pieces to do it, which also completely negates the first quarter of the season when these two were when these two were as close or as close as anything. And talking about the line he's not willing to cross. And that's why he killed Emerson in the first place. Was because Emerson was willing to cross a line that Tony wasn't willing to cross. But if he if, then, if he'd been truthful about it, then he would have never got his cover intact to get to the end of the season when he when he did cross that line himself. Well I mean if 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 you're going to, you've been doing so well with Emerson's crew, apparently. So why did you feel the need to involve Jack and Bill in the first place? Because apparently working with Emerson's crew was going to get you in the same room with E.K. Debaku in the first place. So apparent, apparently you didn't need Jack or Bill or Chloe in the first place. So why even involve them in the situation? Because you could have got Alan Wilson. You could have got Debaku. You could have gotten both of them without Jack's help. Why even play the side of of the double agent, so to speak? Um, why even play that card 
if you're just going to end up going back on it later in the day. Because everything everything that happened with Tony in the last, I don't know, five or six episodes of 24, season seven, negates everything that happened in the first, I don't know, eight episodes. Because it completely goes against everything that Tony told Jack and Emerson in the first eight episodes. I'm going to say something I don't often say, but you're not wrong. Well, thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> no, you are, you, you are right that it is it is a strange thing that he kind of doesn't need to be the double agent that he is here. Um, but it is what it is. <laughs> I sort of like I said, like, in, in isolation, I think this these scenes are quite good. Uh, I'm particularly fond of when they ambush Nichols and Tony has the gun. And he's they've, they've taken all out all his men. And he just goes, okay, then let's put that behind. Him. It's sort of you, you sort of standard Carlos Bernard Tony Almeida dry wit that you we've come to expect. And I really love that. Um, I'm also keen on Renee's fake death. I think that's a, you know, it, it's a, no, she's, she's been well integrated, I feel like, at this point. I think the rapport between her and Jack has been good, uh, albeit slightly complex and uh, unorthodox now that he essentially has kidnapped her. Um, and, I, and I do really like the way that they set that up, that Renee, you know, we, we can see from the start that Jack's not going to kill her. He tells her that, um, you can see from the shot, that it, the, the, the gunshot's not going to kill her. And I quite like that the, the whole thing becomes not about sort of, in the way that stuff with Tony Ward will come later in the season, it's not about, oh, has Jack actually just tried to kill her and then reveal, oh no, it was just he faked her death. It's well, we know Jack's not going to do what Emerson wants him to do, but then suddenly by having to bury her, now there's peril, now there's danger, now there's an actual chance that she could die. And I feel like we wouldn't believe the idea that Jack has actually shot and killed her. Same as, you know, it, it's it's very much <clears throat> similar to Nina in the first season when Gaines has him shoot her. And we kind of, that's, that's a real surprise. And you think, well, Jack, what are you doing? And then you pull the carpet out. He, she had the the jacket, and she's fine. You can't do that again. You can't you can't do that exact same thing twice. I know seasons have tried this, but you you can't get away with it. So actually, throwing a different spanner into it of, well, she could suffocate. That's not that's 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 the issue. Um, you know, it, you don't feel like she's ever going to, but she gets a silent clock, which I'm sure you're gonna not be happy with, but it it, it works for me. Don't so, say don't don't say that Tony's fake death didn't get a silent so clock on Ron, Renee's so, Ren, Ren, so Renee, I'm so you open the can of worms, okay? So no, now okay. I'm gonna go. Sorry, so I, I'm going right I, into it. I would like to close the can instantly. Sorry, that's not that. Once you once you once you open the can, you can't put the worms back in the can. So, <sighs> Renee Renee Walker, right? Who when when did she get the silent clock? What episode was that? Uh, five. Five. Okay. So she's been here for five episodes. Five. Five episodes. She gets a sign of clock. And it was revealed that she was alive in the very next episode. Tony was there for four seasons. Four full seasons. 24 episodes a season. He was there for the whole season. And yet he dies... And I'm pretty sure at the end, at, at the beginning, at the middle of season five, when he dies, I'm pretty sure they didn't have him in the back of their mind. Hey, we're going to bring him back in season seven. They, 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 the, at the time, they obviously got asked about this and they always, in interviews and stuff, left it open that Tony could come back. 
well, of course, because he didn't see a body. But the point is, is that they did not have any plans to bring him back at that particular time. But you don't give him a silent clock. And he had appeared in more episodes. By the, by, the end, by the end of the series, he appeared in more episodes than anybody in 24, with the exception of Chloe O'Brien and Jack Bauer. But he can't get a silent clock. But Renee Walker, <laughs> who's revealed to be alive the very next episode, she 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 supposedly she supposedly dies at the end of one episode. The very beginning of the next episode, she's revealed to be alive. Who's been here for five episodes, five, <laughs> and she gets a silent clock. That in an in, in and of itself is baffling to me. And I usually don't go on these little hot take rants, but that is disrespectful <laughs> to the legacy of Tony Almeida. Tony not getting a silent clock in season five already, and I've, and I've already discussed this, the, the fact that he didn't get a silent clock already in season five was, was, was bad enough for me. That was hard enough for me to swallow. But then in season seven, to see Renee get a silent clock on an obvious fake death. Season five death of Tony <laughs> was not obvious. For all intents and purposes, we thought he was dead. Season, in season seven, you knew that they weren't going to kill Renee off because, Tony, because Jack, said before he even pulled the trigger trust me and you'll make and you'll make it out alive but it's the peril of the suffocation this is my point jack telegraphed by his words before he shut before he pulled the trigger he telegraphed that this was going to be a fake death but she's never going to die from the the gunshot she might die from the fact she has no air yeah but the fact the fact that he telegraphed it before he even pulled the trigger you knew that she wasn't going to die and you still gave her a silent clock. The silent clock is sacred, Bradley. It should incidentally, only be. Incidentally, this means this is uh, the first of Renee's two silent clocks, as she eventually becomes the first character to receive two silent clocks in the show. And when she were, and when did she receive the second silent clock? When she died. When she actually died. Which by then, okay, <laughs> she had been there for about two full seasons at that point. She had built up some rapport. She had been one of the main characters. Okay, let's give her a silent clock. Not after episode five of her tenure, when she hasn't, to this point, done anything notable enough to give her a silent clock. Why don't we just give why don't we just give a silent clock to everybody? Let's give one to Emerson. You know, let's give one, let's give one to Debaku. You no, know, let's 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 give let's give let's give Juma a silent clock while we're at it. I mean, why not? Since we're just handing out silent clocks. The people that haven't done anything don't deserve it. Five episodes, Bradley. <laughs> and Renee gets a silent clock. I definitely regret bringing this up. Tony was four seasons yeah, in. Okay, okay, we get it, we get it, we get it. I'm not happy. <laughs> and having to relive it on this podcast is making me even less happy. <laughs> okay, let's, let's move on then to something that you might like, hopefully. Um, the brand new I White House. It. We talked about Alison Taylor... And the new presidential uh, administration coming in back in redemption. And I sort of said that she's been pegged as the anti-Noah Daniels. Everything that we've sort of come to learn from Noah in season six. She is essentially the opposite of that. And once <clears throat> again, from the start of this season, straight up, we get an indication of this. We get an indication that she is very much like David Palmer. She has her principles. She has her beliefs. She has the way that she's going to go about it in, you know, the, in regards to the way of... The invasion of Sangala and her policy and just everything that there's there's principle to it and there is 
reason behind it and she wants to do the best she can for everyone i i, I get the sense of from her um and it's just nice you know it, it is <clears throat> again from what we had at the end of season six and in large parts of season six all of that drama it's nice to just have the the calmness of it and then you know the drama can form out of henry taylor and the demands and things like that rather than actually the president's kind of not likable I, th- I think she is very likable and i think jerry jones is fantastic in this role um president taylor is probably not one of my favorite presidents is that clouded by her ending though partially okay we need to look at this in isolation remember partially um well it's kind of hard to look at it in isolation when you see it all seasons bradley okay um, Let me, I, i'll put I'll, I'll put a scene to you there because <clears throat> if we talk about that specifically the one where they it's just after two seasons in fact one is when dubaku actually crashes the planes and Cherry Jones's performance in that scene, I think, is phenomenal. And then just after, there is a scene where the cabinet are disagreeing, and Secretary Joe Stevens walks out. He's had this disagreement for hours with her over the invasion of Sangala, and he leaves. He resigns because I think he says something like, I will not stand by while you lead our people into slaughter. Something like that. And then she gives a speech to the rest of the cabinet to kind of unite them again with her. You get the impression that it doesn't work. They're all still a bit like, what is she doing? But that kind of, it, it reminded me of David in season two when he was on trial and the speeches he had to give to the cabinet to sort of say, no, hang on a minute. I, I, I am leading. I can do my job. We're doing the right thing. Or, you know, to following me is doing the right thing. <clears throat> there was that sense of calmness, their sense of, okay, yes, she'll recognize that people don't agree with her, but she is certain of what she wants to do and she is certain it's the right path. And rather than, you know, we look at Noah Daniels, that Wayne Palmer just sort of gets in the way of the agenda. That's that's how he looked that's how he looked to him. And with President Taylor, it's back to the early days of we need to unite everyone. We need to actually have people, you know, come on board with me and you'll see that it's the right thing rather than people disagreeing, okay, well let's replace them and find someone who does agree. I felt for the most part that Taylor was doing what was right in season seven. Um she was very adamant <clears throat> about not negotiating with uh with terrorists no matter how tragic events had laid had played themselves out um even even to the point where she was you know later in this later in the season even to the point where she was really ready to risk her husband's life so she's very she's very firm in her convictions as a character i found her kind of bland a little bit i mean she got a, she got a little fire whenever you know, when when she would snap at Ethan for trying to talk her out of it or when she would snap it at, at, at Tim um, and the rest of the cabinet who didn't line up with her vision or her beliefs. Um, so I enjoyed those scenes. Um, but for the most part, I thought her character was kind of, in season seven anyway, was kind of bland and boring at times um but as a president i thought she was probably the along with along with wayne she was probably the most moral of characters since david left um because you know we we've had keeler who we never really got to know whether he was moral or immoral because by the time we got to know him you know he was gone given his blackmail i'm going immoral <laughs> well, I guess we not, can lean. Not quite Logan and Noah Daniels level, but 
Yeah, but but then again, he's also a politician, so blackmail is kind of second nature to him. Um, that's, that's true. So, other than you know, then there's Logan, and then there's Noah. Who Noah had his moments where you thought that he might be, you know, coming up on the right side of it, and and then as soon as you think he's coming up on the right side of it, he does something stupid that just makes you realize that he's a douchebag. Um. <laughs> So other 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 than Wayne, I think she's probably the most moral of characters since David left um, in season seven. Anyway, um, so from that so from that aspect, I thought she was good. I just thought her her overall character and some of the dialogue that they gave her, and later in the season, it became a little bit better once she you know once her husband you know, got his accident once you brought Olivia in and the family dynamics started to play a role. I thought, you know, her character started to get fleshed out a little bit. But before that, it was uh, was kind of a lot of sameness to me. It's kind of bland for the most part. So I really didn't enjoy too many uh, President Taylor scenes throughout the first half of the season. I think that's fair, actually. And one of the notes I made was that they, the scenes do kind of feel a bit samey with Ethan repeating his stuff about pull out of Sangala. Like, that seems to form a lot of it. Um, so I think I think that's a fair comment that it is kind of bland in these, certainly these six and probably up to episode eight uh, when Henry Taylor gets shot. Um, it's, I'd say it, it's just sort of, she's, she's a nice, like you say, she's a great president, I think. Uh, in this this stretch and um it is just nice to sort of have her again refreshing is the word i keep using but that is what it is after noah daniels but we mentioned henry taylor her husband and he i mean he's sort of the focus <clears throat> of these episodes from from a white house standpoint he is the center of attention here and we get more explanation of the stuff we learned about in redemption with roger uh, the president's son uh, he obviously died in between redemption season seven and Henry doesn't let it go. Henry doesn't believe that it was a suicide, which is what it was claimed it was. And yeah, I, I, I don't think it's particularly... It's not one of the greatest storylines they ever did, but I, th- I feel like it does an effective job of... Uh, you know, the point of it is that we're exposing how widespread this corruption is. We learned about the corruption in seasons... In Redemption, sorry. In terms of seeing Fossler and Jonas Hodges and Nichols and, and, and essentially what Roger was about to investigate... We learned about that then, and this is a good way of when we get into sort of episode ten areas of of the Dubaku stuff, and uh, you know, exposing that side of of the government. This all stems from Henry Taylor's investigation, really. And yeah, I I I, I enjoy it. Uh, I think Colm fails quite good. Um, <clears throat> it's just it, it it's quite nice actually. Um, I enjoyed some of the Henry Taylor stuff. Um, Agent Agent Gedge, I think that's his name. Brian Gedge. He's help. He's so helpful until he's, he's not. He's 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 so he's so helpful, and at the same time, he has this face that you just want to punch him in the face. He's like he has he has one of those villain like faces. Yeah, they've um, <laughs> yeah, that is that is definitely the way that I would describe it. He, he um, mm-hmm. Warren Cole has that look. I don't think I've ever seen Warren Cole in a non-villain role. I don't think I've seen Warren Cole in that much. But I'm, my instant thought with Warren Cole beyond Brian Gedge is he's in the following with um, with Kevin Bacon, and I like he's he's some sort of he's one of the like the cult leaders, serial killer types in that. Mm-hmm. And you just like yes, it makes sense. 
Gedge looks like looks like one of those high school bullies that stuffs you in a locker. Okay, that's <laughs> that, that that's what that's what Brian Gedge looks like. He looks like one of those high school bullies that stuffs you in the locker and you know gives you a swirly and you know pulls your underwear up and gives you a wedgie. That's who Gedge. the first gentleman. <laughs> exactly, and that's and that's how he looks. So if I'm not, if I don't have any prior knowledge of season seven, I'm looking at Gedge and I'm getting villain vibes because he just has that look. Especially after we know about Vossler from Redemption driving Roger Taylor around, knowing that he's involved. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I I thought that that the plot around. Uh, Roger's death was was and was Samantha Roth. I thought it was played out well. Um, <clears throat> I thought the reveal was the the Gedge reveal was one of those reveals that you know not like Nina, not like Tony. It's one of those reveals that you kind of saw coming from pretty much episode one. Um. <clears throat> Because you could you could just tell that he just had that look about him, like you could tell that he's not what he seems, and he's he's leading he's leading uh, Henry around and giving him advice, and he's somebody that Henry trusts, which that's automatically a red flag in twenty four history. Um, and he's giving him advice, but you could tell that he's kind of leading him in the direction that he wants. So by the time that they actually did that reveal <clears throat> with Vossler and Gage and Samantha Ross apartment, it's kind of like, okay, finally they, they did it because this is, this is a thread that I thought it played out just the right amount of time that had it gone on a little bit longer, it probably would have felt a little tedious, but had it ended a little sooner, it probably would have felt like they left something on the table. So I thought that that reveal played out pretty much how it should have um, <clears throat> with Gage and poisoning Henry Taylor. <clears throat> and that whole, that whole scene I thought was pretty well done as far as getting Gage over as the villain and then quickly killing him off. It's not grandiose, is it? It's very casual that we spend sort of five episodes thinking he's Henry Taylor's best friend, and then there's the the way they reveal it is great. The they go into the apartment, and he's just like, "Why is there pictures of Samantha and Roger here? Well, this is her apartment." And you kind of go, "Well, like, there's no there, there's kind of a a horror vibe to it of when you realize when when we all realize that he's." Um, giving him the nerve agent or whatever, the, par- the paralytic agent, I should say. In fact, when when that happens, that's that's a, that's a shock. But when it's just, well, we're at Samantha Roth's apartment, and this is all kind of nefarious. That's just a, well, yeah, that yeah, that's that's the obvious logical next step of this story. And I and I do appreciate that Twenty Four kind of treats you like an adult in that, in knowing that, well, you know about the corruption in the government. Bill's been going on about this. Tony's been going on about this. Chloe's been going on about this. You've not been talking to the FBI because of this. We've seen Vossler. We've seen that Roger Taylor's driver in Redemption was working with the people responsible. We know that Roger, in theory, and actually confirmed by Sam, wasn't responsible for his own death. He didn't kill himself. He was murdered. 
And so you kind of go, well, Brian Gedge being uh, working for for Dubaku and that, yeah, yeah, that's obvious. And and so I I do appreciate that reveal. Um, and you're right about the timing as well. Um, it, it it's great to see Henry sort of get the better of him and and sort of accidentally kill him. Um, but yeah, there's there's a nice build up to it of a couple of episodes of introducing and reminding us about Roger. Incidentally, the story is different from what it was in Redemption. They they pitch it in a different way. Um, then it was Chris, the the colleague, was going to was working on Nichols' project, which was linked to Sangala, and Roger was going to investigate it. Whereas here, it was he found out about it himself, and he was then framed. It, it's a bit weird, but I kind of go with it. Um, but yeah, you do have the nice timing of building up, reminding us what's going on, then finding out what's going on, and then finding out what's really going on. And when we end up next week, when we talk about him being taken hostage by Dubaku, it feels like they've got the the timeline on that right, that we've had enough time of understanding the scenario to then, okay, Henry is now in danger, and how do we explore that? Yeah, I thought I thought it was, you know, the the incident, the circumstances around Roger's death and them changing over time is kind of, it's a minor thing because they didn't, they didn't drastically change it. They just kind of changed a few nuggets around. So I didn't mind it too much. Um, <clears throat> but I thought it, like I said, I thought it ended just in time because it ended just in time for Baku to take him hostage um so I thought that that was and that and that led to in my opinion when Taylor President Taylor really started to get her character flushed out a little bit um because of you know what we'll talk about next week with with Henry and then eventually Olivia and the whole family dynamic um becoming more of a it was kind of it was kind of a backdrop uh through the first six episodes um and then through the second quarter it started to become a little bit more of a um, of a secondary focus not just a backdrop but more of a secondary focus and was given a little bit more time so i thought i thought overall i kind of enjoyed that yeah i would agree with that um we've not mentioned debarky much but that's kind of a consequence of other things being more interesting but don't worry well he will certainly be a key part of next week's discussion that will be 2 p.m till 8 p.m episode 7 to 12 um and before then if you want to contact the show uh you can do you can go on twitter at the 24 podcast you can go to 24faithful.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 405-771-0567 and josh will hopefully ping that over to me if we do get any um but that's it for this week thank you for listening um and we will be back again next week (laughs) 